Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is one you won't want to miss. Henry Winter, the chief football writer for the Times of London. We've had some great guests lately, including John Orand, Soccer Girl Problems, and Ted Lasso's Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt. I also encourage you to listen to my new podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All seven main episodes are out now, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content. Now, here's my interview with Henry Winter. Our guest today is one of the world's leading soccer journalists. Henry Winter is the chief football writer for the Times of London. He has covered eight World Cups, and he has been covering the sport professionally since 1986. I'm absolutely thrilled to have him on the show with us. Henry, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, Grant. Thanks very much for inviting me. Good to catch up again. Yeah, it's been a little while. Um, I want to start by talking about the craft a little bit. You do different types of journalism extremely well, but one thing in particular that I associate you with is what I would call the insightful match report. And my sports writing hero, the Sports Illustrated legend Frank DeFord, always compared what he called the British-style match report to a review of a Broadway or West End stage production. <laughs> do you agree with that? And do you think there is a place for a traditional on-site match report in the internet age? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point. The internet age has definitely changed things. I mean, I vary my match reports depending on whether it's on uh, satellite TV, whether it's been streamed or whether it's been on you know, the BBC, the ITV, more the sort of state broadcasters, which more people have access to. Because I think the more people have seen it, I, they don't really want me to repeat the headers and volleys because they've been through that. And social media does it instantly and brilliantly. So I take a slightly more reflective piece. I mean, it depends on the game. If it's a cup final or if it's an England match report, maybe a knockout match, then I will uh, then I'll write it as if I'm a fan. So your your original point about the uh, the British sports writers taking maybe a more emotive, treating it as a sort of Broadway West End production, I think is right. Um, I look at the American media and the print media and I just see the detail. And you've been doing this for a long time, you know, the box scores, the detail and everything. And I read it and I think this is amazing because you're a stats obsessed uh, country and it, and it play, and you know, your, your main sports, baseball uh, and, and gridiron in particular blend very well into, into the numbers game, but I'm kind of more of sort of hearts and minds, emotions, um, particularly as the longer I've been doing it, the, the more you get to know players and managers, how they click as individuals as well as uh, sporting individuals and sort of go maybe put a little bit more on the, uh, the heartstrings. I mean, I do. I always read back my match reports and I go, what on earth was I saying there? And I'll go, well, I've got someone in the office screaming for me. You know, the, the deadline's going. We've got to file sort of 1200 words by uh, 75 minutes. Um, but then you get games like, I'm sure you were there, Champions League final 1999 with Manchester United against Bayern Munich. And I wrote the most beautiful first edition piece, which was all about Bayern Munich supremacy and the English coming up short and Ferguson being tactically inept and playing three wingers in midfield and what on earth was he up to? And 
and um, and then sort of 30 seconds later showing them a Solskjaer come on and then you, you you know you have to react like that and I mean to be fair to Ferguson at the start of the next season he said this to me and a few other guys who were covering Manchester United at the time say I saw your first edition so listen <laughs> the, the great thing is you, you can you can prepare as much as you like but the great thing is is that you are always in the uh, you know the whim of what the players are going to do and it's and that's the beauty of it you can't you can prepare as much as you like, but you just can't prepare for the unexpected. And that's why football, soccer, as you call it, is just so, it's so magical for me. It just changes every, every moment. Even with the coronavirus pandemic changing all of our lives for the past year, you have continued to go on site to stadiums, as you're allowed to, and write match reports. How are you holding up during all this? Well, fine. I mean, I'm incredibly lucky. I mean, I talk to a lot of my friends. I mean, look, your wife's very distinguished. You know, I follow her. I see the work that she does. I've got friends who are working, you know, at the heart of the NHS, our health system. And I hear what they're going through. And, you know, I've got neighbours who are... Uh, who, who, who are sort of nurses and doctors and I bump into them you know if I'm walking down the streets or going out for a run and they look knackered and I can see the marks on their face where they've still got the you know the, the mask I mean these are the true heroes um, so no I'm incredibly fortunate that you know there's another debate should sport should be played personally I think it should because everyone's locked down at home they need it on the whole I mean if you go to the games and I've done what about I know about 90 games behind closed doors the medical protocol is supreme take an example the other night I was at Manchester United and a steward came up to me and said mask very politely they always are at Manchester United but just my mask had slipped slightly below my nose um and it's so the medical protocol, everything you do when you go there, when you get temperature tested. Um, and I mean, when I went out to Iceland to cover a game, when we were able to go abroad, when England were playing out there, I got tested at the airport. I got tested at the hotel. They checked exactly where I mean, the medical protocols. I'm sure it's the same in, a, in American sports. In fact, I think if anything, that they, they, they seem even stronger in American sports. I think certainly if you've had, was it one of your your clubs the other day had four wide receivers had COVID or whatever and couldn't play, and the NFL was saying no, we carry on. Um, so I just I think sports. You know, Carlo Ancelotti always has this great line that football is is the most important of the least important things, and I think now it's 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 a it's a sign that things can get better. It's a sign that human endeavor, that, you know, which obviously it's all doctors and nurses and sport and scientists are doing that at the moment. But, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Football can continue. The great passions that we have, whether it's drinking tea or going to football matches, you know, they, they will continue. So, um, yeah, no, I'm very lucky to go to matches and um, it's quite cold at matches at the moment. So but apart from that, it's just, it's fine. And, and you know what? I, one thing I will say about the matches, first, they're rubbish without fans. There's yeah. no intensity. I mean, the Germans call them the ghost games, and as ever, the Germans get many things right, and, and they are ghost games. But what I, I have to say, I my admiration for footballers has increased because they've continued to play with the intensity. I've done Manchester City's last three games live, 
and you see the work that De Bruyne puts in, you see the touch of John Stones, you see the commitment of Rodrigo and Ruben Diaz. You know, it's it's just fantastic. You see, I was down at Chelsea and you see Fernandinho on the touchline. He was supposedly warming up. He was coaching Phil Foden. He was giving advice to Raheem Sterling. The professionalism of these sportsmen is, and, and sportswomen, because the women are continuing to play football, is is just immense so huge kudos to them so you mentioned that you have been to about 90 games behind closed doors how many games do you attend in a in a year and how many grounds have you been to in the uk well i I'm, i think i'm just starting out given how many grounds we got in the uk i'm going to marine <laughs> at the weekend which is a non-league ground where tottenham will be playing at the weekend so i'm really looking forward to that I don't know. I guess I do about like in a World Cup year, um, 130, 140, 150 matches. But for me, and everyone does this job differently, for me, it's about the match. The whole thing is about the 90 minutes. That is the lifeblood. That is the intellectual property of football for me. Everything else is not just detail, but it's it's kind of like it's outside the show. So it's, you know, the, the players are the most important thing, the fans in the stadium and the managers. And then you have all the attendants, whether it's the commercial, whether it's the owners. And we've got some quite fun American owners in the, in the UK, whether it's the, the agents. And we've got some really fun uh, agents or floating around. So all the dramatis personae around the, uh, the show is great. But it's, you know, the main characters, Shakespearean characters are the Falstaffs, the Romeo and Juliets, you know, the, the, the Henry, the, the Henry, the fourths, Henry, the fifths. And then all you've got all the amazing characters on the outside who do add to the show. But for me, it's about the 90 minutes. And that's why I love that's why I love going to games. Um, and I love going to new grounds. You go, it's like you, you've been to eight World Cups that, you know, the, the, the last World Cup in, in Russia, I've been to a couple of the grounds before, but it's just brilliant going to me. And for me, it's not simply about going to the games. I, I did the World Cup in, in 94 and it was, I was in Detroit and in Washington and it was, it wasn't simply about going to, I think it was the RFK stadium there right. where Washington uh, played uh, or play. And, and it wasn't simply about the, the seeing, um, uh, aware and Saeed Aware and scored that amazing goal for Sa Saudi Arabia, one of the greatest goals of all time. It was about exploring Washington. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so look, every time England get drawn somewhere, it's an opportunity to go to a Kosovo like a couple of years ago, to go to Tirana, the pothole capital of the world, and 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 just just see new places. I'm quite curious. I'm mean, like all journalists. I'm quite curious and nosy. I like, I like going to Russia and getting lost and and talking to people and saying, "Where am I?" And they said, "You really shouldn't be here." And I said, "Oh, sorry," and sort of flutter my eyelashes and just wander off with my B-decker. <laughs> so, in terms of the Premier League this season, when you look at the season so far, what stands out to you the most at this point from a football perspective madness i mean it's so unpredictable which again it's just great to be able to go to these matches and just see this incredibly unpredictable season i mean maybe we should have realized it would be unpredictable because some f clubs particularly have been hit by not having their fans there sheffield you know, all, all clubs have but sheffield united you've been to bramall lane when the fans there and they they've got their extraordinary songs that you know the chip butty song and and singing about sort of strange nights out in in dubious parts of sheffield you know when that place is absolute rocking it's an old school stadium 
then then the, the team comes alive and they've really missed them uh, this season. So, uh, yeah, it's um, it's been an unpredictable season because of that. It's been an unpredictable season because the, the close season, as we call it, was so short. The managers right. didn't have that time in training that you normally do. I mean, I would often take a holiday in in New England um, when I was seeing friends up there and going to um, going to uh, uh, Boston, Cape Cod. I've got friends in Nantucket. And one of the things I loved about, and you, you'll advise me better on the time, but it was often when you would have the pre-season training yeah. and, they, and there would be page after page in the Boston papers about was, um, was Brady going to sign a new contract? And there'd be about 400 journalists interviewing him <laughs> at training when he was throwing balls around and that. And it was just... You know, just that sort of level of, uh, you know, level of interest is, you know, is is great. So, yeah, the games, so the, but the pre-seasons, we just haven't really had. So the managers haven't really been able to coach. And it's and it's no surprise that Manchester City are now finding their stream because they've been able to spend longer with, with um, under Pep Guardiola, almost coaching on the hoof during games, working with Stones and Diaz, whether it's Fernandinho shouting from the touchline down by the corner flags is warming up, whether it's Guardiola absolutely screaming at them, working on them. So the, the, the training and the, uh, the playing are going sort of side by side. I think some people have been psychologically affected by COVID. I think some people have got family members that they're shielding. I think some people have had their eyes on events at home. I think for, for one or two of the foreign players, it's been quite difficult, particularly if they're if they're single, they're living in a flat on the edge of Manchester. They maybe don't know so many people, don't know the language. They're not being able to perform at their best because they're worried about um, you know families the other side of the world. So look, there's so many different factors that you have to take in. But I think what this whole COVID pandemic period has done to all of us, Grant, is that it's just reminded us of human nature, human frailty, and, and human strengths as well. And I think that's always important to remember that that footballers aren't robots. You know, they are they are flesh and blood with relatives and, and concerns like the rest of us. Euro 2020 is set to be held this summer with, you know, fingers crossed, with with several games, including the semis and the final at Wembley. Where do you see England's national team right now heading toward that tournament? Well, if I was the England manager, Gareth Southgate, and every England journalist thinks he's the England manager, I would be hiding behind my sofa, hoping that uh, none of the players get injured. Um, I mean, England, England have got a chance. I mean, look, as ever with England, you have to put it into perspective. You look at this Belgian team that Roberto Martinez has got. You know, Eden Hazard has not had the best of time at Real Madrid, but if he's fit, he's one of the best players in the world. Wamalu Lukaku can terrorise English defences. We've seen it at club level and international level. They've got Kevin De Bruyne, who not only is one of the modern greats as a player, will be, I, I mean, I've, I get most of my predictions wrong, but I think he will be one of the, the greats as a manager as well. You just see why the Belgians have put him on this fast track. Uh, with their national association to be a coach in the long term. They've got so many intelligent players. They've got good goalkeepers. They've got good defenders. Then you look at the French as well. I mean, you were out in, in, in Moscow and you saw the quality of their team there. You look at, you know, the way Spain clicked against Germany and tore them apart without really a team of superstars, although we've seen how good Ferran Torres has been at Manchester City. So, look, 
England, you always have to put that in perspective. Everyone expects the, the English arrogantly to roll up at a tournament, say we won in 66, we invented the game, move over. We invented journalism. We invented oxygen. Um, you know how arrogant the English are. You know, we're going to win everything. Whereas, uh, you know, at times with England, I'll be happy to win a corner. Uh, but we're now England are winning shootouts, which is great. You know what I really hope is that at some point this generation of players deliver because look, you've covered previous English generations and look, they're, they're good people, but this lot, they're really impressive bunch. You've seen the work that Marcus Rashford has done oh, yeah. with uh, childhood poverty. I mean, I rang up Marcus at the, at the start of the pandemic because I knew he'd be rattling around his home and I knew he had one or two plans. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm reading about how, uh, supply chains, supply plan. I think it was an American book and about how, uh, individual organizations, great organizations, particularly sort of supermarkets, chains like that, actually move uh, produce around. And he said, I've got, I need some trucks to, to move the food around. Then it grew from that. So this is a very socially responsible generation, a bit like your, your amazing women's team, um, mm -hmm. soccer team. You know, I, I look at the individuals there and I just think these are really good, strong, responsible people. And then coming back to the treating footballers as humans, as well as sort of athletes and robots. Um, I look at Raheem Sterling, the work that he's done on, uh, on, on racism. It's, it's, it's huge because sadly, whenever England go abroad, um, into certain countries, I have to say, a minority of countries, you know, they get racially abused. And the good thing is that the players are standing up for that. And the first team that will walk off en masse will probably be the England national team. Because I've talked to a lot of the players and they're ready to walk off because they say, you know, why should... Say someone like Tyro Mings, Aston Villa, very intelligent individual, came up through a really, really difficult background and then, you know, fought his way up through the non-leagues, I guess the minor leagues in, in American terms. You know, why should he... His family flew out to Sofia, to Bulgaria, and then be... And here, their, you know, their son their brother be racially abused in the warm-up in the match so I think this is a very powerful generation so th the point I'm trying to make is that I have huge respect for this generation of England players as individuals as men as socially responsible citizens and boy you know we need them at this current time they're almost the modern leaders now whatever your political viewpoint is um, I think this is a this is a very just as a responsible generation so and look we've got the talent there's no doubt about that. I still think Dean Henderson maybe needs a couple of years longer and then he will be a fantastic goalkeeper. Jordan Pickford, I like, but he'll have one or two mistakes in him. England have got, still got issues at centre-half. I mean, it's great to see John Stones back, but Harry Maguire mm -hmm. can slightly get caught out with mobility and pace. Central midfield, who's the passer in there? You know, that is that is the issue because... Southgate will probably be cautious and play Declan Rice and Jordan Henderson and one other. But up front, I mean, who do you know? Who do you want to play? Harry Kane will start. You know, you've got Raheem Sterling on the right and Marcus Rashford on the left. You've got Jaden Sancho can come in. You've got Jack Grealish, a different type of player, more creative, less quick. So England have a chance. But as ever with England, I think it's about keeping the ball, keeping composed at set pieces. And it's psychological because the weight of the shirt is still very heavy on them. I'm sold, Henry. England's going to win the Euro. <laughs> Do you? Do you think that? I mean, oh. you know, actually, you know what? I, I, I was a little facetious there. I, I think I think it could happen. I think it'd be a great story. I, I think Marcus Rashford in particular 
has become this global citizen as well and and obviously a terrific player but it, it's like at this point even though he's playing for maybe the the most widely viewed club in the world that what he does off the field is just as important or more important than what he does on the field I, I don't know. It's it's pretty impressive. But he's got the balance right because he knows that people are watching him to see if he's being distracted by all the stuff that he's doing off the pitch. And I think right. for most Manchester United fans, it's more important that he runs rings around opposing defenders rather than our prime minister. I want to ask about sort of your story. How did you get into this business of sports writing in the first place. It always fascinates me talking to, to, to sort of colleagues in the press box, how they got, because if you look around, everyone's gone through di- absolutely different routes. You know, some people have come from no educational backgrounds and they're the best writers in this country. Um, some have, I mean, I come from slightly more sort of, I guess, privileged. I think most people would sort of say I've been sort of fairly fortunate in my, uh, in, in my background. But my focus, even though I was surrounded by people who were going on to become politicians and accountants and medics and actually one or two, one or two quite sort of decent musicians, rock stars, at school and at university, my passion was always to be uh, to, to cover football because uh, I just love the idea of exploring. You know, I've got this thing. I have to go to two new countries a year, and I'm what fifty-seven now, and I'm. You know, and I'm slowing up a bit and I tell my kids new countries, new countries. Um, I was fortunate to be educated in in Paris and um, and in Munich, although although just my luck, I got the one boring year in Bayern Munich's illustrious <laughs> history where it was the tail end of their great 70s team and and the 80s team hadn't really clicked in. But it was still good going to the Olympic Stadium, amazing old building. Um, so, yeah, so look, it's always been a uh, it's always been a passion. But but look, Grant, it's like. It's, it's like in the States. It's like in any profession. If you if I look around the press box and everyone's got completely different backgrounds, I, the one thing they've got in common is a work ethic. Um, and I think if I got one thing in common is I don't need much sleep. I can get up in the morning and, and drive wherever in the country to, to, to a game. So but yeah, it's a um, I keep coming back to this fact that this job is a privilege, that the yeah. fact that you can go to eight World Cups. You know, I mean, going to the World Cup in, I remember going to, I was in Chicago briefly in the World Cup in, in 94. And I was just about, I was changing jobs between the independent newspaper and the Telegraph newspaper. And it was a big deal for me in terms of sort of more recognition. The money was irrelevant. It was just more recognition. And what put it in perspective was that there was a radio station in, in Chicago and they said, uh, they ran me up, said, uh, Mr. Winner, can you come on and talk to us tonight? We've got our phone in program. I can't remember which one. It was one of the central major radio stations, sports radio stations in Chicago. And, um, and I, I went on, they said, this is Mr. Winter from London, England, at the Independent, moving to the Telegraph. Um, just what is this sort of soccer competition going on? <laughs> so I, sort of t- I talked about, you know, the joy of, you know, the beautiful game, Pelé and 1970 and the greatest World Cup victory ever, 66, and why it's the most important sport in the world. And they said, well, that's really great. And I thought I'd spoken really powerfully for about sort of seven, eight minutes, you know, great ambassador for football, soccer. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the DJ said, um, 
so the presenter said, oh, well, that's really interesting. So what we're going to do now is we're going to open up our phone lines. We normally do for the, you know, to sort of talk about soccer and, and the great and the great sort of issues of the day. And um, the first caller was, he said, hi, it's it's Chuck from downtown. Um, Chuck, what's what's your point? There was a pause. And he said, getting back to OJ, because <laughs> it was the time when yes. you remember and I was, I mean, I was flicking on my television and there was a car chase going on through LA. The Ford Bronco chase. And it was, and it, it was that year. I got that right, haven't I? And it was, and it was, they, what? I said, this is really interesting. You know, I, I mean, American sports is huge, but now they're sort of filming people driving down the, down the, the, the speedway. I would. Um, so yeah, that kind of put it in perspective, but look, all things like that, you know what you want to do? You want to experience things in life. You want to meet people like we've met and we've had chats, unfortunately not so much recently because of COVID, but it, it's great. And when I, I, I next know when I go to a, a tournament to the Euros and there'll be friends and I'll count them as friends um, from, from L'Equipe in France, from Tout Deutsche Zeitung in Germany, probably some from all over the, the, the world will come in and, and touch wood, watch this, this, this tournament and see life return to normal. Hopefully, I hope, hope, hope with fans, vaccine permitting. Um, it's great. And I find it, I, I find it fascinating, like meeting you, meeting the other American journalists. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the American media. I mean, I went out with a New Yorker for three years and she mm -hmm. never saw me because I would be sitting in the Empire Diner reading the New York Times or the, or the Post or, or whatever, or, uh, or going for supposedly a run in Central Park and sitting on a park bench and just reading, reading you in, in Sports Illustrated. So, you know, all the, um, yeah, look, we are, we are incredibly lucky and particularly you look at the serious job that your that your wife's got you know i look at the serious job that you know i've got friends who are in the military who who fly planes and i just talk to them when we're allowed in the pub and i said you know and, and some of the stuff they can't talk about and then mm. and they said anyway about villa's right back problem and i'm going <laughs> you know you know we are we're lucky we're lucky Grant. <laughs> Let's take a quick break from our interview with Henry Winter, and I want to ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga or the Copa Libertadores and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports and English and Spanish, Gold TV, and many more and it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. I do want to read something you wrote very quickly here. When you joined the Times in 2016, you wrote, quote, I've been shot at, spat at, and asked for selfies, sent death threats and a marriage proposal. I've covered seven World Cups, too many fans, riots, and far too many failed penalty shootouts. 
I've had run-ins with the Moscow Mafia and the Sao Paulo police. 30 years this month as a football journalist has allowed me to see the world and all extremes of human behavior, end quote. There's a lot to digest there, Henry. To start with, what is the moment in your career when you have been the most concerned about your safety? Yeah, probably when I called for uh, Sir Alex Ferguson to resign. <laughs> <laughs> I did that. They'd, they'd had a match out. I think it was Benfica. It was in early 2000s. And they'd had a bad match. And I thought at some point, Grant, you know what it's like. You, you have to make big calls on big decisions. You can't sit on the fence. And I thought, well, you know what? Maybe it's time for him to go. And people who I respected, good pundits, one or two friends of Stralix has said, well, you know, it's probably time for him to go. And I made that call and I probably regretted it ever since. Um, so, yeah, I think that was probably the time. I mean, you don't you don't want to let Sir Alex Ferguson down, particularly when you get something so, as wrong as that. And I, I had that image in my head as I was uh, filing the piece from Moscow when when Ferguson won his second uh, Champions League a few le- few years later. And everyone said that this was, you know, he's, uh, he's like the knight in Monty Python. You can keep cutting limbs off uh, Sir Alex Ferguson and he keeps fighting back. You know, he lost another limb. Goes, it's only a flesh wound. Come on, you coward, fight. That is the nature of Sir Alex Ferguson. No, but on a serious note, when have I been... I mean, I don't know whether I should admit this, but I do have a slight soft spot for hiding myself in stadiums and seeing what I can see. So I've been chased by a few police in my time. Okay. If you ever want to cover a CONCACAF World Cup qualifier in Honduras, <laughs> I, we can add an element of danger to, uh, to that got, as you, well. You got, did you get, did you get mugged? Did you get your wallet lifted? Uh, and my phone and got a gun put to my head in 2009. Yeah. Um, got out of it, thankfully. And um, uh, the U.S. qualified for the 2010 World Cup the following night. So it turned out to be a good weekend. <laughs> But Grant, you are you are so famous. I, I had it that the uh, that the head of the Honduran FA personally apologised to you. It wasn't. It, no, it was the president of the country. Oh, um, you better. You had to trump me. Um, but he, he, he pulled a coup. Like he, but yeah, he made a joke about it. Was the guy who mugged me was a supporter of his rival. Uh, <laughs> yeah, long long story uh, for another time. Hey, um, you, you've you've stood for FIFA. You've done some dangerous things. <laughs> you've always been very supportive of, of the random things that I do in my career, so I appreciate that. Um, are there any particular memorable moments in your career when you think to yourself, and there probably are a few, I was lucky to witness that or or have a personal story that went with your coverage of that moment? I mean, I've been fortunate to write books ghostwriters we call them books with one or two famous players and I think I mean I Stephen Gerald asked me to write a book and I said yeah I will write it as long as you're completely honest about everything and within 30 seconds of me sitting down on his sofa in his house he was telling me about his wages he was telling me about how he almost went to Chelsea he was opening up about the issues he had uh, as a as as a child uh, he talked to me very emotionally about losing his cousin at Hillsborough so in, in moments like that, you know, they always say, um, again, I think it's an American journalism thing. And I've read a lot about American journalism schools. The first thing I, I took from American journalism school, though never having attended one only in the UK, was if you don't go, you don't know. And I think that's so important. People who actually go to events and we got the opportunity to go to events. And that is huge. And the second thing was journalism is the first draft of history. 
Now, I think in a way, print journalism is becoming like the second draft of history. I think social media, and I do a lot on, on Twitter because I love Twitter, partly to wind people up and partly because I use it as a very much a research tool to find yeah. out. You know, if I'm going to a match, so I've been to what four matches this week, and I'll I'll tweet that I'm going into the match, not in a sort of here I am way, but in a sort of, you know, this is what it looks like way. Um just to sort of draw on the information and pick the brains of the Manchester City fans. You know, this is, you know, we've done, we haven't done well against Chelsea or look out for so-and-so or John Stones is in good form. So, um, but yeah, for, but journalism is the first draft of history. I, I love that opportunity. And whenever I walk out of games, I'll bump into England games. I'll bump into England fans. I know a lot of them and they'll be so emotional. England have been knocked out or England have gone through. I, I, when I walk out of grounds, I actually have very little emotion because I hope I've had that opportunity to pour it into the screen, into the words and into the uh, wherever it comes out, whatever form it comes out, social media, digital print. We're winding down here with Henry Winter. Really appreciate your time on all this. Um, if I'm being honest, I, I really haven't researched anything about you before outside of football, but I did a little bit for this discussion. And I learned that your brother, an academic named Timothy Winter, has been named one of the world's 500 most influential Muslims on several occasions. That's fascinating to me. Is there an interesting story there? Yeah, well, I think he was actually, the most recent one, he was voted amongst the 50 most influential Muslims in the world. Yeah. And, and rather amusingly, he... Um, he, he doesn't do many interviews. Um, he's too intelligent for that. And he uh, he just did. I mean, he sits in his Cambridge college and just he's remarkable. He's not on social media, but I can go to games and I'll get fans coming up and say, and I think, oh, they're going to have a go at me for having a go at Wenger or having a go at Mourinho or whatever. And they just go, you're rubbish on Wenger, you're rubbish on Mourinho. But by the way, can you pass on my admiration to your to your brother? And, you know, you've got my sister's quite a well-known artist and I, I've, I take great pride uh, from them. I, I don't understand what he's writing about because it's I remember when I had a, a you know, like, you know, you've had far more successful books than I have, but I had one which did quite well and I was quite proud about it. And I never really mentioned these things to my parents. And I, I was at home one day at my parents' house in London and uh, and I said to them, oh, I've had a book that's done quite well. And they said, yes, but your brother's books just sold 2000 copies on uh, Sufi poetry in the 11th century to 2000 uh, uh, academic institutions around the world. I'm going, all right, I've just sold I've just sold almost a million copies of my book. Um, so, yeah, no, he's he's a remarkable individual. He's got great principles, great soul. But, yeah, when he got voted amongst the 50 most influential Muslims in the world, he actually talked about he talked about me in the book. I think they asked him and said, you know, you're this you're one of the most intelligent individuals in the country, Cambridge scholar, blah, blah, blah. Um, and your brother is a, a basically a thicko football journalist. Um, how, how, you know, what was it like growing up with this thicko football journalist? And Tim very sweetly said, uh, well, listen, we told Henry, stop playing football, stop going to football, stop writing about football. Nothing will ever come of it. But look at him now, um, married to a Bond girl and living in an eight bedroom house in the country. And because um, my wife's an actress and the house isn't it? But anyway, so I, I sent my brother, and of course that just caused carnage on social media. So uh, I sent my brother a text and said, listen, Tim, if you're going to talk about me, at least say it's a one bedroom house in the country and I'm living with eight Bond girls, because at least that sounds slightly better. I might get some kudos on social media out of it rather than the, the battering I got. 
this was going to be a question just for accuracy's sake here. You, you are married to a Bond girl. Yeah, yeah. Well, she was, <laughs> uh, well, she, she was quite a well-known actress in, in English soaps. Um, you see, that's one thing, one of the main things we got in common, Grant, is that we're married to, uh, you know, far more successful people. Well, now you're successful, but Celine, I'm a huge admirer of Celine. But um, yeah, no, she was, yeah, she was in a very well, our biggest soap opera over here. And she got asked to audition for the start, you know, the start of the Bond films when they have someone yeah. holding a gun or dancing in front of, a, you know, an, uh, an ace of hearts or whatever. Um, yeah, so she did that. But she's... Um, She's got many more qualities. We should mention our wives' names. My wife's name is Dr. Celine Gounder. Your wife's name is? Kat. Awesome. A couple more questions here. You've made several visits, obviously, to the United States over the years. You've talked about it on this interview. What are your thoughts on soccer in America at this point? I think it's great. I mean, I've, I've been a lot. I, lo I love the States. I've driven coast to coast. I've driven north, south. I've been stopped by your great police speeding going into New Orleans. And they, uh, I, sh I showed them, I showed them a European, sadly, we're not in Europe anymore. I showed them a European passport. And then I had to explain to them why the UK was part of Europe. And I had a passport, which was, uh, sorry, a driving license, which was as relevant in Istanbul and Madrid as it was in London. That was not an easy, uh, that was not an easy one to explain. Um, you know, I've been really impressed with MLS. Uh, I mean, look, so look, I, I can I can talk from my perspective. So, I, the, you know, you look at the players who are doing well in Europe. I saw Zach Steffen the other night. You know, he comes from somewhere I think is in, in New Jersey. I mean, he's, you know, you've, you're producing some good players. Pulisic, I really like him, but I, I, I look at him and I think you've got to be nastier. There's a fantastic player in there. Hazard level skills. But I just want to see him. I just want to see him hurt opponents. I want to see him go into tackles because because there's a player that you've got a fantastic generation of players. You know whether it's Giorena coming over uh, to Dortmund, you've got some great players. So you're producing them, no question about that. Uh, at MLS uh, standard wise, I would say it's probably bottom end of of championship our, our second tier but, you know i've seen some good games over there. i went to atlanta when uh miggy almoron was playing there first won an amazing is it the mercedes dome or whatever mercedes I mean, benz yeah mercedes benz amazing stadium yep uh and huge has been going for about sort of three four years and you've got fans culture which is like would have taken us 150 we're a bit we're a bit more shy and reserved compared <laughs> to the americans but our fans culture would have taken longer you know so fantastic you've got that so it's america you know it's the land of opportunity and you've got players developing i don't know whether you're tapping enough into the sort of the mexican community um right. in terms of players and support that you'd far know far better than i would but look you've got some good players i mean you know you if you think england will win world cup i mean i think at some point america if it's if it still keeps on developing and i assume you'll get the world cup in you know the one after the uh, much wasted uh, competition in qatar um absolutely you know your country that doesn't fail it's 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 the nature of your people you invest i mean i i went to atlanta's training ground oh god it's fantastic nice. you know and the people, the quality of people they've got there is 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 huge. So uh, you know, long may the MLS thrive. Yeah, well, uh, we'll just try and qualify our men for the next World Cup as opposed to the last yeah. one. But yeah, but there is excitement, uh, especially pointing toward twenty six. There's some real excitement about what that generation could be by then. Obviously, we've seen our women's team win 
the World Cup the last two times. Um, so that's got people perennially excited. Just just to wrap up, my last question would be: You've been in this business now for 34 years. You have always worked at a very high level. How long do you want to continue doing this? Well, until I get found out. <laughs> I mean, I I, t- I turn up to matches and I've written a preview in the morning and every I mean, I made what I think is the most eloquent argument for something to happen, and the exact opposite's happened. So, um, Grant, I'm going to carry on going until I get it right. No, I can't. look, the one thing I will say, the quality of young writers coming through in this country, of young reporters, phenomenal. You know, they're cutting their teeth on social media, local news, the athletics, new digital operation. Uh, the, you know, the, I mean, I keep looking over my shoulder and think, you know, even with my dodgy knees, I've got to run faster. <laughs> Henry Winter is the chief football writer for The Times of London. Henry, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Grant. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Henry Winter as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.